It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. He has had a life before COVID-19, an intense and exciting one if I can say so. Today, Dr. Mike Ryan is Executive Director of the Health Emergencies Program with the World Health Organization. Infectious diseases are his forte, which is just as well. The world is battling a pandemic, and Ireland hasn't escaped its deadly clutches. So, good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Let's go and meet Dr. Mike Ryan from the WHO. From training Iraqi doctors during the invasion of nearby Kuwait, to being refused permission to leave the country, to being run off the road by a military convoy and suffering horrific injuries that would dictate his career path in medicine. From fighting SARS and Ebola in war-torn areas where your life was up for grabs every single day, to of course fighting COVID-19. It's all in a day's work for Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization. Born in Sligo but raised in Charlestown, County Mayo, Mike Ryan, as he insists on being called, came from farming stock. His father was a merchant seaman. Because of his job, his son didn't see a lot of him. Anyway, his father died when he was 11 years of age. Although having to sit his leaving cert twice, Mike opted for a medical career. Training in Galway, Dublin and Scotland, it looked as if he had found his niche in trauma surgery. But one never knows what's around the corner, and Iraq certainly had a lot of surprises for him, not all of them pleasant ones. When Mike and his girlfriend, now his wife, arrived in Iraq, their timing couldn't have been worse. Their arrival coincided more or less with the invasion of neighbouring Kuwait. I was actually on my way to um, Australia, <laughs> taking the long way around because uh, I had uh, been accepted into a resident uh, training programme for surgery and orthopaedics uh, at the Royal Prince Alfred in, in Sydney. There had been a slight hiccup in the process that I had a three-month gap in which I had nothing to do. I'd finished my, my house job and uh, I got a call. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was was in this the, the hospital in, in Baghdad. Uh, it was a kind of collaboration, I think, between the Royal College of Surgeons and, and Iraq around uh, delivering tertiary services in, in Iraq. And um, I got a call to say, would you come? Uh, because there's a Danish neurosurgeon coming to to do some special operations and he needs a, a, a surgical registrar to, to assist him. I jumped on the first plane and I think within a week of me arriving, the invasion of Kuwait had happened and we were all stuck there. Many, many, many Irish, the vast majority of people working in that hospital were Irish doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, radiologists, lab technicians. So there was a whole pile of us stuck there for many, many months. 
And is it true you were refused permission if you wanted to leave at that stage? Oh yeah, no, no, we weren't. We were definitely not allowed to leave. Uh, no point. It became a major issue uh, because historically many of the regime in Iraq would have sought medical care outside Iraq. They would fly to Saudi or fly to Beirut or fly to Europe to have their specialist medical care. And when the border shut, they couldn't go anywhere anymore. And we were the only Western staffed hospital in Iraq. So we rapidly turned into the equivalent of a, um, a specialist hospital for, for the regime. So um, that was rather strange. Our clientele turned from ordinary people seeking, you know, a last chance for some of them of, of tertiary care. That was turned around very quickly. So it became a very strange situation of being a, a hostage and yet treating many, many people than people who you would see on TV and very, very weird, weird situation. But the, the staff were wonderful. We all got through it together, you know. Yeah. What sort of country is it, for instance? How? What sort of health care does it have overall or generally? Well, now after all of the, the conflict, I think a lot of the health system has collapsed. But at the time we were there, the health system was probably, uh, you know, quite quite strong. Certainly sur surgery and orthopedics and trauma surgery was at a very high level because Iraq had just fought a massive war with Iran. It was almost like the First World War, trench warfare. So all of the surgeons in, in, in Iraq were tremendously skilled war surgeons. But the system itself was obviously much better for the regime than it was for ordinary people. So uh, the Middle East in general had a, a, a higher level of health care than one might expect. And that would be the same in Syria and in Iraq and uh, in all of these countries. And the real tragedy has been to see their health systems fall apart as the conflicts in these countries have extended over decades now. Is it true that eventually you were allowed to leave then? And was that because a vehicle you were travelling in was run off the road by a military convoy? I remember reading that somewhere. We were in a very bad four-wheel drive accident. It was on a rest weekend. We were being... We had been there for months and we were all very tired and the authorities offered to take us to in two different groups over two weekends for a rest weekend at a lake in Kurdistan. And we were all very nervous about the offer because we weren't quite sure what it meant. But we went and unfortunately we had a very bad four-wheel drive accident on the road and myself and uh, another uh, colleague, uh, Siobhan, were pretty badly injured in that. And uh, it was a long way from Baghdad and we had an interesting journey back and had to you know be cared for in our own hospital which was a lesson in life in itself and spent a number of weeks in that situation and then eventually were negotiations were held and uh, we were released uh, before the rest of the the irish because of our injuries Did that accident then more or less put an end to your plans for a career in trauma surgery? Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was try, I, I did try after a couple of months to go back, but um, it just was impossible. It took a long time for the injuries to heal. You know, surgery, standing for hours, leaning over patients, it was just the, the worst possible posture to have to have for someone with a serious back injury. So after a 
it was very clear that it was either going to take me a very long time to rehabilitate and I wasn't going to be able to go through the normal. Well, you know, training and surgery is punishing enough as it stands without carrying an injury like that. So I took time out to try and recover. And while I was slowly losing my mind uh, in Galway, I called up Cecily Kelleher, who was the professor of health promotion at the time, and said, basically, I needed... uh, I needed uh, therapy in the sense I needed work therapy and I just offered to work for free and said, is there anything I could do? So I ended up going in helping Cecily and some of her staff with some public health service they were doing. And after a couple of months doing that, she said to me, you know, you should do a master's in public health. And I never thought about it. I ended up doing a master's in public health in, in Dublin and then going on to London to do five years training in communicable diseases and uh, public health, which kind of set me on the road to WHO. So you never know in life. Sometimes you think it's all over and all your dreams are, are in shatters and uh, and then things happen and another path opens up. And, you know, some of us are lucky enough to have that second path open for us, you know. You tend to end up in places of conflict. I mean, at the turn of the century, you were in Uganda as head of a team there involved in the containment of Ebola. And this brought you to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This was a dangerous time, I am told, and a dangerous place for aid workers. How how dangerous was it in reality? Well, all of those situations are dangerous. I mean, about 70% of high-impact epidemics are now cover, are occurring in zones of conflict. So the, there's a very, very dangerous footprint right now in the world. And zones of conflict are very often places where health structures have collapsed, where people are very vulnerable. It's a, it's a real breeding ground for infectious diseases. So, we're, you know, all our outbreaks that are recurring a great proportion are recurring in those situations. So conflict and communicable diseases are bedfellows. One drives the other. They've always been two of the horsemen of the apocalypse, and when they get together, it can be very, very frightening. And uh, Congo, Uganda, many other situations. I've worked in Sierra Leone, I've worked in Liberia and Afghanistan, and Syria and Iraq, and uh, we're both in terms of the infectious disease we face and in terms of the conflict and the security situation, no more than if you ask a, a fireman or a, uh, an RNLI person in Ireland or you ask a policeman, are you afraid or is, uh, is it stressful? It is, but if you're properly trained and you know what you're doing and you know how to manage those risks, then you can minimize them, both in terms of the personal danger of the security situation um, and the infectious disease danger. But we saw the tragedy. We have a team operating in, 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 in North Kivu in, in Congo, and we've lost people there in the fight over the last couple of years. We saw the Italian ambassador and his bodyguard and a driver shot to death just uh, on the same roads that uh, we used, I used to drive on less than a year ago. So uh, it's never possible to bring that risk to zero. We, we live with that many people in the UN system and our colleagues in Goal and Concern and Anthrocra and NGOs and, and people who work abroad and our peacekeepers and others are and do put their lives on the line for, for health and social justice, for peace. Uh, and they're, they're heroes in, in my view. And, and the sacrifices their families make, to me, are even greater. Because when you're in a dangerous situation, be it, biologically dangerous or security dangerous, you know those dangers and you're experiencing them and you know when you should be afraid or not afraid. Your family is always afraid because your family don't know what's happening to you at any one time. So the greatest sacrifice and I think sometimes the greatest fear is amongst our families as they worry about us. You only have to ask the families of Irish peacekeepers who deploy, you know, just how stressful it is to live with that fear and the so it's something, it's something that needs to be carefully managed. And it's increasing. The fact is, 
we're operating more and more in these zones. And, and, and in, in other days, being a, a, an aid worker or being a UN worker was a protection. You flew the flag of the UN or you flew the flag of your NGO on your vehicle. Or, and that was almost, uh, almost uh, a protection. It took you out of the conflict. The, the difference now is we're being attacked. Healthcare, healthcare systems, healthcare workers, healthcare facilities, NGOs and others are actively attacked as part of war, which is a new development and, and is one that's very, very disturbing. And the vulnerable always suffer, of course. In the end, it is always the vulnerable mm. that suffer. Before we talk about COVID-19, just talk to me a little bit about Ebola and uh, SARS and the similarities, if any, with COVID-19. I mean, Ebola is transmitted from animals to humans. Am I correct there? You're absolutely right. Um, I think uh, many, but you know, about 70% of new and emerging diseases are animal-human in origin. In other words, they come directly from animals, they breach the species barrier, and they enter the human system. Uh, a lot of the time when that happens, the diseases are not adapted to transmission in, the, in, in, in human beings. Beings and, and, and are relatively inefficient at doing that. They tend to attack many organs, make the person extremely unwell, and they kill a high proportion of the people they infect, which is on the one face of it a bad thing, but historically, by doing that, the virus has run out of, run out of room very quickly. It's very hard for the virus to extend its transmission chains in that situation. But as we've packed populations together in higher densities, as we move around the world in a much speedier way, those same uh, emerging diseases that have probably been around for centuries but just have never been able to emerge and amplify and propagate at the same time. It's not just disease emergence. It's the opportunity that the disease gets to amplify in a poorly run health facility or gets to amplify in a refugee camp and then gets to propagate because we, we're connected around the world in 24-hour travel uh, cycle. There's nowhere on the planet you can't get to in that 24 hours. So those three factors of emergence, amplification and propagation, and we're driving most of those risks. We're the ones who are packing people into peri-urban slums. We're the ones that are allowing refugees and displacement and climate stress to drive people off their land and forcing them to exploit more pristine environments. We're the ones that are cutting down the rainforest. We're the ones who are driving uh, a lot of that risk. And the diseases themselves are different. They're very different viruses. In nature, they, they usually come from small mammals in nature, be it Lassa from small rodents or Ebola from bats. But it's generally small mammalian species in the forest who are probably walking around, flying around, carrying these uh, viruses that, that have adapted to them over centuries. So the viruses are not causing them any problem. The problem happens when that virus infects a human. And it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket. For most of the time when that happens, nothing happens. But just once in a while, the virus gets a magic ticket because of its genetic structure. It can survive in the human body and cause disease and further transmit within humans. That's what we've seen with COVID. That's what we see with uh, SARS. That's what we've seen with uh, Ebola. Very often, these diseases can kill directly. The virus itself can infect many, many cells and infect people and, and, and make people very ill directly, the virus itself. But as we've seen in COVID, it's not just that. We see the same in Ebola. Very often, uh, you see as the disease progresses, the virus starts to get under control. But the problem is the immune system switches on too much and the immune system overreacts. It overshoots the runway. And we see that in uh, in COVID-19 where many people who are on ventilation in hospital, it's not been directly caused by the virus itself. It's very much been caused by the immune response. The, the body reacts violently to the presence of the virus and causes a lot of inflammation and swelling. 
Executive Director of the Health Emergencies Programme with the World Health Organisation, Dr Mike Ryan, is my guest on Where the Road Takes Me this evening. And that's the end of Part 1. Coming up in Parts 2 and 3, we get down to the nitty-gritty of COVID-19 and why lockdowns should be the last resort. Born in Sligo, raised in Charlestown, County Mayo, Dr Mike Ryan is Director of the Health Emergencies Programme with the World Health Organisation. Infectious diseases are what he specialises in, so his input to fighting COVID-19 right now is invaluable. Was there a life for Mike Ryan before the coronavirus? There most certainly was. He's been in most, if not all, war-torn countries, fighting Ebola and SARS especially. While in Iraq, his plans to follow a career as a trauma surgeon were cut short when he was run off the road by a military convoy, suffering horrific back injuries. Trauma surgery is not a career to follow with such injuries. Coming up in parts two and three, the ins and outs of COVID-19, why lockdowns should be a last resort, and what sort of normal can we expect when COVID-19 is defeated for now? At the end of part one, Mike Ryan spoke about respiratory problems caused by COVID-19 and its likes. It's worth going back to that again to understand that, make no mistake about it, it's COVID-19 that puts you in hospital. But once you're there, it's got an ally in your immune system. Very often, uh, you see, as the disease progresses, the virus starts to get under control. But the problem is the immune system switches on too much. And the immune system overreacts, it overshoots the runway. And we see that in uh, COVID-19, where many people who are on ventilation in hospital, it's not been directly caused by the virus itself. It's very much been caused by the immune response. The, The body reacts violently to the presence of the virus and causes a lot of inflammation and swelling. And then uh, if that's happening in your lung, that stops oxygen transferring into the blood. And that's why you see so many people struggling to breathe on oxygen and on ventilators. So in that sense, the injury itself causes a second, uh, a secondary inflammatory response. And sometimes it's that inflammatory response that causes more damage than the virus itself. And then SARS then, severe acute respiratory syndrome. Syndrome, yeah. yeah. Well, we... SARS and COVID are caused by the same family of viruses. uh, These are coronaviruses, and they're called coronaviruses. Corona is the the, uh, Latin for crown, and what the virus has is a crown of proteins that spike out. So you have this circular virus with all of these protein spikes sticking out. So it has this look of a crown, and that's why it's called a corona, a coronaviruses. But they're ubiquitous in nature, and we have many common colds caused by coronaviruses. They're circulating all the time. So coronaviruses in themselves are, are out there, some causing disease, some not, uh, and in most cases, very mild disease. But every now and again, we get SARS emerging or now as we've seen COVID-19 emerging. It's a small shift or change in the genetic structure of the virus that just makes that one virus particularly well adapted to infecting or killing humans. How soon before we did, did you, when I say you, I mean the WHO, know that there was a serious virus on the way that would result in becoming a pandemic, i.e. COVID-19? I was uh, looking at videos. uh, Someone sent me a video recently and wondered whether I, at at that stage, it was was legal for me to be actually drinking because I look so young. I mean, we've been doing this for 20 years. We've been speaking probably, I think, consistently since about 1993, 4, 5 about the risks around emerging diseases and pandemics. Many, many reports have been written, World Health Reports, 
reports on antimicrobial resistance. There have been thousands of recommendations. No more than in Ireland, in the world, we're brilliant at writing recommendations. We're brilliant at saying that something must be done. We're not so good at actually getting on and doing what needs to be done. And I think that's our greatest uh, failure in this. This was coming. This was pre-warned. We knew the risks were very high and uh, the investments just were not made in the necessary preparedness and prevention and resilience. We're learning hard lessons now, but I hope we don't forget we've had to lose an awful lot of people to learn those lessons, which is a tragedy in itself. But uh, there are lessons to be learned. I'm, I'm more concerned now in implementing the lessons and the knowledge because uh, I'm frankly getting rather sick of just seeing lists and lists of recommendations that never go anywhere. Recently on this programme, we were discussing the flu epidemic of 1918 and a point was made that because it was left to run its course back then, and that was simply, I presume, because we didn't have an answer for it back then. Medically, we hadn't advanced to such an extent as we have now. But because it was left to run its course, somebody made the point that that resulted in a 100-year cycle. Now, because we have vaccines developed at present, helping people obviously being diagnosed with the disease, that puts an end to the 100-year cycle, and we could be looking at a 10-, 15-year cycle. Is there any credence to all of that? Well, first of all, these are completely different viruses, um, so they're not in any particular cycle with each other. And we've seen lots of pandemics since the 1918 one. And most since 1918 have been milder. And this is with influenza, pandemics with influenza. Most have been milder. And it has been almost entirely to do with the genetic structure of those viruses. Small changes in the virus can do two things. It can change the transmissibility of a virus, the capability of the virus to go from one person to the other. That doesn't necessarily change how serious your infection is. It just increases the efficiency of the virus to move. Uh, And that's what we saw in 2009 with the influenza pandemic, which spread all around the world, infected probably as many people as the 1918 pandemic. The only difference was that particular strain was not virulent. It was not capable of causing much severe disease. But it may only have been one or two, one or two base pairs away from, from actually doing that. The other factor is the ability of the virus to kill or kill cells, kill human cells. And uh, if you get a combination of a transmissible virus that's highly lethal, then you're in, you're in trouble. Uh, and in a sense, the reason why COVID-19 is, is being compared to the pandemic of 1918 and 19 is because even though its overall case fatality is actually quite low, when everyone's infected, even a low case fatality is, is, is striking. You'll see in the USA, they just passed a half a million deaths in one country. That's more Americans that have died in the First World War, the Second World War, and the Vietnam War in one year. So I think there is no cycle as such. This idea that what happens in predictable cycles, no, there's a lot of unpredictability uh, around this. There's a lot of chance. According to Mike Ryan, we were ill-prepared to deal with COVID-19. Roy Keane's famous mantra comes to mind, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Mike Ryan says that we live dangerously in hope, hope that this virus would not happen, and if it did, it would not be serious enough to take preparatory measures to stop it, even limit its effectiveness. 
The fact is we have not been ready for a pandemic that spreads around the world with any degree of severity. Uh, and right now, this COVID-19 is severe, but not as severe as, as, as other uh, diseases I could imagine in the future. Uh, I'm not saying we're getting off lightly. We're not. But uh, it's, it's not the most severe scenario that one can imagine or even close to it. Your director general said recently that nobody will be safe until we are all safe. And am I right in saying that what he meant by that was that nobody will be safe until everybody is vaccinated? Now, I know there's a lot of talk. Uh, there was Boris Johnson talking about reopening society yesterday. There's been a little talk about it here as well. Is that exactly what he meant? Nobody will be safe until everybody is vaccinated. So until that yeah. happens, we shouldn't be talking about reopening. Uh, I, I think partially, I think his words are also speak about the fact that if we don't stop the disease everywhere, then it can come back anywhere. So you can get perfect control on the disease in Europe. But if we let the disease run free in Africa, then the chances are it will just return. So it's about making sure that we put the fires out everywhere and the fire is burning everywhere. So just uh, just protecting our own home doesn't uh, in any way protect us from the, the fire reaching us again. In that and within that statement, yes, vaccines play in a very, very important part in that. Uh, the DG also speaks about not leaving anyone behind. And uh, we need to emerge together from this pandemic, socially and economically. And if we only protect people in the developed world with the vaccine, that means we will shut down the horrific deaths and the hospitalizations and all of that tragedy. But if we leave that tragedy in place in developing countries, they will fall further behind economically and politically. Instability will grow in those countries. Migration pressures will increase. And the very things that are driving the conflicts we spoke about earlier, John, and driving all of the risks, uh, will, we will fuel those risks of a new emerging diseases. So this is just not a zero-sum game. It's not a trade-off. We have no choice but to come out of this as together as we can. Uh, it's not just the, the, the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do. And uh, from our perspective, equity and vaccine distribution is really important. That doesn't mean that governments and countries like Ireland should not protect their most vulnerable and their frontline health workers. That's the sovereign duty of government. And that doesn't mean that governments should not have the aim of protecting their whole population. That's the sovereign duty of governments. But we also have to look uh, at the planet and we have to look at the global uh, population of what's the best strategy for using those vaccines. Uh, so once we have our most vulnerable protected, once we have our high-risk people protected, can we at least decide together for both practical and moral reasons that protecting frontline health workers are all around the world is a practical and moral imperative? Uh, I don't want to see a situation where, uh, as we see already happening, frontline health workers still being infected and dying in developing countries and perfectly healthy adults being vaccinated in, in, in the north. That's not, for me, uh, an acceptable outcome of this, of this response. But vaccines are a hugely important part of us getting out of this. But we also have a lot of other work to do to continue to drive transmission down. Vaccines alone are not going to get us out of this jungle. Last week, Mike Ryan was the co-recipient of Trocara's Romero Award. The award is named in honour of the late Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero. Mike Ryan received the award for his work on global leadership and highlighting the risks facing vulnerable people. At his acceptance speech, he referred to two words we have become mesmerised with here, and that's economic growth. He referred to economic growth as sometimes resembling a malignancy rather than a growth itself. I mean, we all want to see uh, people's livelihoods and people's uh, prosperity expand. 
no question there. And economic growth is a positive way to achieve that. But unsustainable economic growth, economic growth that ignores communities, ignores our environment, uh, ignores basic social justice, then that's not the kind of growth that I think is either desirable, sustainable, or, uh, or frankly moral. Now, you're originally from County Sligo. You grew up in Charlestown and County Mayo. Tell me a little bit about your family. Your dad, I believe, was a merchant seaman, so that would suggest that you didn't see him quite a lot. No, he was. He was away for, for most of my early years, and uh, unfortunately, we, we lost him when, when I was 11, so we had a very short time together. But he was uh, from um, from Tubbercurry in County Sligo, and my, my mum was from Charlestown and County Mayo, and we ended up living you know, four miles from my grandparents on one side and three miles on the other side in the in the village of uh, Curry in County Sligo. So my uh, my allegiances have been <laughs> the border uh, for a very, very long time. Right. And would there have been a medical background at all in the family? No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the first, uh, I, I think, uh, first medic in, in, in my family. And, uh, you know, I come from farming and, and merchant stock, you know. So uh, definitely uh, uh, I'm the first to do uh, to do medicine and uh, we're very lucky to, to have had the opportunity to do that. And was it always something you wanted to do? Was it your career plan even growing up as a young lad? I, I, I was always interested in science, sure, and the sciences. I think I wanted at one point to be a marine biologist or uh, then I wanted to be a sound engineer, an engineer, or an architect. So I think I was always going to end up in the STEM area, you know, somewhere. I suppose early in my teens that this is something that I wanted to do, but uh, I, I also have to temper those hopes. It was, as it is now, very difficult to get into medicine. So uh, I was very lucky to be able to do so. Although I had to repeat my leaving cert to do it. I, did, I wasn't the first time or I had to go around for a second swing to, to make it happen, you know. You did your initial medical training at NUI in Galway, trained in uh, orthopaedics in Scotland and a master's in public health in UCD. That's a nice mixture. I was very... Uh, committed to, to doing surgery. I, I had worked in Africa as a medical student uh, with voluntary services abroad in my fourth year, fifth year in medicine. And uh, I realized at that time that I really wanted to work internationally and in an African setting. As a doctor, you were only really useful if you were they, able to do surgery and been able to be the surgeon in effect in the hospital. So uh, I wanted to pursue surgery for that reason. And I really loved orthopedics and traumatology and was trying to pursue a career in that and uh, life intervened and uh, and uh, I ended up doing uh, infectious diseases in public health so but uh, wasn't by choice but in the end probably as my grandmother said probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And that's the end of part two on Where the Road Takes Me this evening. My guest is Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization who insists on being called Mike. In part three we return to the topical subject of COVID-19 when we ask about the prospects of returning to normal, the normal as we knew it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In part three of Where the Road Takes Me this evening, I continue my conversation with Dr. Mike Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Programme. Coming up later, does he have sympathy for governments who are trying to balance the welfare of their people physically and mentally? And when do lockdowns become the answer or not the answer? Well, you've often heard the term used herd immunity. Herd immunity is when a large part of the community are vaccinated or safe or both, and because of that, they in turn offer protection to those who aren't. As a result, Mike Ryan says it's not necessary to vaccinate 100% of the population. Yes, I mean, no question. If we can get as many, many people protected as possible, we don't exactly know what that number is, but it's likely to be somewhere around 70 or 80%. The challenge we have, John, is that we know the vaccines protect against severe disease or hospitalization. We don't fully understand how much they interrupt transmission. And with some diseases, it's possible to be protected from illness with the disease, but still be able to transmit the disease. We see this with polio. Uh, We've seen this with polio over years. It's one of the reasons why polio continues to be a problem uh, in that we vaccinate the vast majority of people, but because kids can still process the virus in their gut, even kids who are protected with with the vaccine can sometimes continue to transmit. We don't know what the outcome yet is. The early data suggests that the vaccines are pretty effective at preventing transmission. We don't have that absolute proof yet. So how much the vaccines and herd immunity will will uh, will play out here remains to be seen. There's also a natural immunity that's built up. So if we add the natural immunity that's built up through infection and the and the um, and the immunity built up through vaccination, we reach a population immunity level, uh, and we just don't know. We're trying to better understand that we've got 50 or 60 countries around the world working with us on standardized serologic surveys, basically surveys to look at exactly how many people have been infected around the world. And then when we add the vaccinated numbers to that, we'll have a much better sense of when and if 
herd immunity will kick in. But you're right. Normally what herd immunity means is that uh, an individual who's unvaccinated can be protected by the fact that everyone around them is vaccinated, which means you don't have to vaccinate 100% of the population to stop the disease because those people who are still vulnerable are essentially being protected by the vaccinated people around them. The virus can't get to the unvaccinated person. Diseases, infectious diseases continue to spread when unvaccinated individuals are present in a high enough numbers and have contact with each other and the disease can continue to trickle through those cracks. And uh, it's only when you seal those cracks by having as many people vaccinated as possible that the virus just ends up in dead ends. It's almost like one of those uh, mazes that the virus just cannot get out of the maze because it can never find the next person to infect because there's just too many unprotected people between them and the next victim. person who is vaccinated and they inadvertently fall into company with somebody who is infected, are they safe at that stage? Yes. I mean, in, in, the, the day themselves, yes. There, there's no question that the vac- the, all of the vaccines, whichever one you choose, appear to protect uh, against severity, uh, against serious illness, hospitalization and death. We don't have absolute evidence that the vaccines protect you against, you know, you can be exposed to the virus, the virus might reproduce in your nose, the virus might potentially even be able to cause a mild illness. You might feel like you have a common cold. What the vaccines will absolutely do is protect you against having that severe disease, having the breathing difficulties, being admitted to hospital or dying. And that's what we really want to get out of these vaccines. Um, Whether they'll protect everyone from a mild infection, again, that's not sure. And there's certainly um, evidence to suggest that not all the vaccines are 100% effective at doing that. But uh, I would would take that if someone tells me I can have a vaccine that stops me dying or going to hospital. I think I'll take that vaccine, you know. Do you have sympathy with governments at at present? Uh, Just take our own government, for instance. They're responsible for looking after the community with this virus, but they also have to sort of balance that with, I suppose, people's physical and mental health at the moment as a result of lockdowns Mm -hmm. and also what this is doing to, (laughs) those two words again, economic growth. Do Do you have sympathy with governments in this scenario? Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a it's a dilemma. And it's a genuine dilemma and and one which is remarkably difficult to deal with. But again, I would say that these aren't trade-offs. Unless you get the virus under control, you don't get your economy back. Um, But at the same time, the consequences, physical and mental health consequences, social consequences of lockdowns are such that they're having a massive impact. But remember, there's a lot of countries in Asia that never had to go through this and have you know, from the very beginning implemented a comprehensive strategy with high levels of population compliance. And they've had been able to contain this disease 
and now are using vaccines to prevent any further uh, uh, re-emergence. So we also need to look at how did we get here collectively, uh, particularly in the developed world, um, in terms of the, the ability to contain diseases like this. Uh, there's been a, a tension right the way through this event on, you know, how public health systems work and case finding and contact tracing and isolation of cases and quarantining of contacts and a lot of resistance to doing that. But the countries that have managed to do that, that have really focused on that, have avoided the worst of the lockdowns. Remember, lockdowns are a last-ditch effort. Lockdowns are what you do when there's nothing else you can do. And they're necessary because of that, but they're a last resort. Uh, so we've gone in Europe to the last resort three times. question is, as we come out of this surge, with vaccines now uh, in tow, can we be smart enough to avoid a fourth surge of, of death uh, and our hospitals filling up? And can we use the vaccines judiciously and properly? Can we continue to do the testing and the surveillance and the contact tracing and continue to maintain our physical distance? We have a ways to go. Uh, people were worried about dates, John. They're always talking about what date and the government's going to meet on this date and maybe they'll announce something. It's not driven by dates. It's driven by numbers. It's driven by how far down can, for example, Ireland get. I think you're at about 800 cases a day or 700 now. It's come down from 1,000, which is great. But it's taking a while. And really, until those numbers come down further, I think the government are going to have limited policy choices going forward. Yeah, we had one death yesterday, and I think was at 670 cases, still very high. Yeah, it's still very high, and mm. that limits the options government have. Yes, the vaccines are coming in. We see increasingly, I think, oh, the 85 pluses are all being vaccinated now. The nursing homes have been vaccinated. I think it'll come down into the 80s and 70s in the next week or two, which is great news. Um, and therefore, our most vulnerable people will start getting protected, and that's going to reduce the suffering and the death and take the, the terror out of this for people. But are we then going to continue with all the other measures to, to, to stop this disease and then come out of lockdown with, the, with, with still maintaining our physical distance, still wearing masks, still washing our hands, still being very careful about personal risk, and then using the vaccines? That, that gives the government options. But right now with those numbers, uh, I think it's up to each and every individual to say, what's the goal? The goal isn't a date. The goal is getting that number as low as possible. And every single individual in Ireland makes choices every day that makes the likelihood of that number going up or going down possible. The main topic of Irish conversation for years has always been the weather. That's now replaced by conversations on COVID-19. And for very good reason. One of the sub-conversations from that has been the question most people are asking. Will we ever see normal again? Well, good news on that front, but for Mike Ryan, hopefully not the normal of old, but replaced by a new normal with our priorities stacked in the right order. No, I, I think that future is very possible, and it's not that far away if we work hard. Look at, look at Australia, look at New Zealand, look at Thailand, look at Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, look at China, look at, at South Korea. They're living their lives more normally and as normally as they probably ever did. So it is possible. There are, there are clear examples of it already on the planet. So the exit is there. It's complicated. Uh, Ireland uh, is, a, is an open country. We trade with the world. We move around the world as a people. Uh, we're an island nation, but uh, it's, it's difficult and, uh, and, and to, to get to a point where we have complete control uh, on, on, on the virus. But that is possible. And certainly the days of masks and the days of having to, you know, six feet apart from each other and, and, and not go to the pub and not go to a football match or, you know, not see your friends or do whatever, is it's, it's terrible. But the question is, what normal do we want to get to, John? Is it back 
to the old normal where we were at risk and we weren't doing the preparedness we needed to do? Is it back to the old normal where the health system was constantly under pressure even before? It didn't take a bad flu season to fill up our, our A&Es before. Is it back to the old normal where we're you know, driving climate stress and climate change in a very negative direction? Is it back to the old normal of social injustice and, and housing crisis and, and God knows what else? So I, I'd rather us move forward to a better normal, one in which we're a little bit kinder to each other, a little bit more conscious of not our individualism and our right to be ourselves entirely, but our communities and our membership of communities. And those communities exist virtually and those communities exist physically. But I, I do think what this has taught us as a society, as a civilization, is that community matters. What we do as societies together matters. And if we can't do certain things together and we can't do them coherently, then viruses like this exploit those divisions. They exploit that individualism. Uh, what is my right to do what I want to do versus my community's right to survive and live? And I think... They're the questions we need to ask ourselves. What kind of a society do we want to re-emerge as? Uh, and I think most people are thinking, you know, we've got some existential issues now and we've got to hand over a planet and a society and an economy to our kids that we're not ashamed of. And our stewardship so far isn't going so well in my view and I think we can do better. I want to go forward to a better normal, not back to an old normal. And of course, in between, between now and then, it's frustrating, it's maddening, it's saddened to see people who are working hard to see that happen. And then, on the other hand, you have idiots who are holding house parties with 70, 80 people. Yeah, well, look, people make choices um, and, uh, you know, we've all made stupid choices in our lives at times. Uh, the question is whether people learn and whether people have that sense of responsibility. And it's not just, you know, the house parties, yes. Uh, very often uh, that that sort of criticism has been thrown previously at the teenagers. They're not the ones having the house parties, by the way, you know. It's adults uh, and not always younger adults. Uh, so uh, there, there are lots of different ways in which people make individual choices that are not for the good of themselves, their families or their communities. But selfishness is is the human condition too. Uh, we like to celebrate innovation and we like to celebrate solidarity, but selfishness is also a sad reality of our existence. Uh, and that's the kind of, we need to learn, all of us, how to be less selfish in the choices we make uh, and how to be able to do that in the interest of our communities and our society. And maybe that's what we should be teaching to our kids in school more. Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure. And that's our story for this evening. My sincere thanks to Dr. Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization for joining me. Thanks also to Ken Parrott, who was on sound. And lastly, but definitely not leastly, thank you for dropping by. Something I hope you'll do again at the very same time next week. In the meantime, from myself, John Green, have a good week, ensure that it's a safe one, and goodbye for now.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 